message from Trinity Grace Church in San Antonio, Texas. For more information, please visit trinitygracesa.org. Well, I want to welcome you once again to Trinity Grace. We are so glad that you're here, especially if you're a guest with us this morning. And if you have a copy of God's Word, you can turn it to Titus chapter 3. Uh, Titus chapter 3 is going to be one of the passages that we're considering this morning, and the other passages we'll be considering are also printed for you in your worship folder. And kids, I'd like to invite you to be listening for the following three things in the sermon this morning. First, be listening for a story about abandoned places. A story about abandoned places. Second, be listening for a story about damaged packages. Damaged packages. And third, be listening for how you would describe the new heavens and the new earth. What are some words that you would use to describe the new heavens and the new earth? Well, this morning we're wrapping up our five-week sermon series looking at our core values as a church. And as we've mentioned each week, these core values act as a foundation upon which we hope to grow this local expression of Christ's church. It's our hope that our core values would guide us as we discern where God might be calling us corporately and individually. You may have noticed over the weeks that our core values, they have a certain flow to them. They begin with how we relate to God and they slowly move to address how we're called to relate with our neighbor. Last week, we considered how we're called to be a group of people who are hospitable to our neighbors and even to our enemies because Jesus was hospitable and welcoming us into his life, even when you and I were working against his purposes in this world. Knowing the hospitality that we've received from the hand of Jesus should make us the most hospitable people that our friends and our neighbors know. Well, this morning, we're going to turn to our fifth core value, which expands even further beyond how we treat our neighbors and touches on what we long to see happen in our neighborhoods, what we long to see happen in this world. Our fifth core value is renewal. We are a group of people who believe that God is presently at work in our lives and in this world, and that he longs to renew what sin has damaged both what sin has damaged personally in our lives and systemically in our world. Now, we've mentioned that this sermon series has been topical, where instead of a deep dive into one passage and expositionally preaching on just a few verses, we are using multiple biblical passages to launch us off into a reflection of our specific core value for the week. And with that in mind, let's turn our attention to a few portion, portions of God's Word that invite us to reflect upon the renewal that God wants to bring, that He promises to bring. You follow along as I read, beginning with a passage from Titus chapter 3. For we ourselves were once foolish and disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. Now, Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 18, Paul says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us, 
For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. And then in Revelation chapter 21, John writes this, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Well, this is God's word, and he gives it to us because he loves us, and he wants us to know him. If you're a person who has kids at home, or if you're one who grew up being read stories, then you know that lots of children's stories begin with a familiar opening, once upon a time. When you hear that phrase, once upon a time, you immediately understand what's coming next, don't you? When you hear that phrase, you automatically settle in to hear a story. Well, that phrase, once upon a time, isn't unlike what we get at the very beginning of our scriptures, where we read in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning. In the beginning. It's a phrase that should indicate we're about to enter a story. Just like the phrase, once upon a time, it's a phrase that invites us to settle in as we move along with the ups and downs that a normal story contains. I wonder if you've ever considered that the scriptures are primarily a story. Now, when I use the word story, I am not inferring that the contents of the scriptures are fictional or made up in any way. No, a story can be true. I'm using that word to describe the overarching message of the scriptures. The Old and the New Testaments, we believe, tell the grand, true, amazing story of God's redemptive work in real time and real space in this world. The Bible, it's not primarily a rule book. It's not a disjointed collection of wise sayings. It's not good advice for life. The scriptures are primarily one grand story of God's work in this world. And like any good story, there are rhythms to this story or movements. And generally, you can understand the story that the scriptures tell as you read it with the four big movements of creation, fall, redemption, and total restoration in mind. That's the story arc of the scriptures. And as we think about this storyline, it'll be hopeful for us um, as we appreciate our fifth core value, renewal. The story of the scriptures, it starts with creation. 
We find this story, uh, this part of the story in Genesis chapters 1 and 2 of our Bible. In the beginning, the Bible tells us that God made the world and everything that He made in the world was good. You see it time and time again in Genesis chapter 1. God creates and then He calls it good. And then this newly created world, man lived without pain. He lived without frustration. He lived without loss, without sin. There was no injustice. There were no relational problems, no depression, no eating disorders, no divorce. There was nothing sad in Genesis chapters 1 and chapters 2. God was with man and all was very good. People, they knew their dignity and their worth. They engaged in meaningful work that brought them fulfillment. They related to God and one another in healthy and vibrant ways. It was all very good. And we've got to stop right here and remind ourselves not to fast forward over this part of the story. Because as Reformed Christians, at least this is my contention, we have a tendency to gloss over this very important first movement, to skip the implications of creation altogether. If you're like me, you tend to want to start with sin, right? We want to confront people with bad news first, but as we do that, we actually give up a very compelling and beautiful aspect of our apologetic or defense of the Christian faith. We need people to understand first and foremost that they were created for beauty and dignity and harmony with God and with one another. We need people to understand and appreciate that they were created to do great things. Both believer and non-believer alike were created to have an impact, to exercise loving dominion over this world. In fact, the more people can appreciate the beauty and the glory of creation, the more they'll understand just how tragic and heartbreaking our fall into sin was. So the story begins with God creating the world and mankind. And at the end of that creation, God looks at his masterpiece and he declares very good. But as you know, things did not stay good for long. Relative to the entire story, things stayed good for two chapters out of the 1,189 total chapters of Scripture. We're talking maybe a page or two of real estate in your Bible. Now, we don't know exactly how long this goodness was experienced, unbroken. It could have been hours, days, maybe years. But eventually we know that darkness and evil enter the story. The second movement we see in the biblical story is known as the fall. Creation, fall. And this movement is painted for us in Genesis chapter 3 where Adam and Eve, as representatives of mankind, decide that they're better off without God. They think it would be better if they were king and queen and that autonomy was better than lived out dependence upon the Lord that loved them. And in disobeying and leaving their dependence on God, everything was marred or disfigured, or damaged. Even though man still retained the imprint or the image of his maker, he was ruined. And fellowship with God was broken. And the big problem of the fall wasn't just that sin came into the world, though that certainly happened. It was that all of the flourishing that God intended for man and woman to experience would now be halted. Man and woman wouldn't exist as they were intended to exist, living in right relationship with God and flourishing as a result of it. 
There's a Twitter profile out there that's all about highlighting pictures of abandoned places. On this feed, you might scroll down and you see an abandoned forest uh, um, or an abandoned house in a German forest, or you might see an abandoned water park in Vietnam, or an abandoned train on a set of tracks. And they've been abandoned for decades and decades, maybe even generations, and they're pictures of once vibrant places or things that have been completely deserted. And over the years, what you see is rust and deterioration and overgrowth begin to occur to the point where you can still make out what once was, but it becomes increasingly difficult. And as you see these photos, it's pretty shocking. I'd call it haunting. It's haunting to see these once vibrant places now completely uh, desolate. These once vibrant places and things could get to the point of this significant deterioration, yet you can still make out the beauty that they once possessed. Now, that's not a bad picture of how we might think about what the fall has done to God's good creation. Sin enters the story and it brings deterioration and damage to what God originally intended. And sin doesn't totally annihilate God's good purposes and beauty and things, but it does vandalize them. Look, you've likely, you've likely experienced uh, uh, an instance where you order something from Amazon or from another uh, online retailer and they ship you a brand new item. You receive the item, you open the box, and you realize that the item had been damaged in transit. I mean, what you expected to show up was this new, pristine, ready-to-enjoy uh, purchase that you had pulled the trigger on, and it's damaged on arrival. Well, in much the same way, because of the fall due to sin's entrance into this world, we now all show up damaged in a sense, damaged on arrival. And we also show up damaged to a, a world where things are incomplete and falling apart. The world is damaged, not just us. In our doctrine of the fall, it helps us make sense of this world in a way that nothing else can. Why do relationships break down? Why do we struggle with self-image? Why do we battle with depression and loneliness and besetting temptation and wrestle through dark nights of doubt? Why is there loss in life, loss of vocation, loss of health, loss of dreams? Why do we have to experience the pain and the sorrow that comes with the death of loved ones? Why? Well, sin is an evil invader. It's a parasite that has come to leech away at God's good intentions and purposes for us in this world. The negative impact of sin on God's good creation, it cannot be overstated. In fact, the more you've lost, the deeper you understand how damaged God's goodness has been, the more renewal will mean to you. Look, that's a large chunk of the story, but we're not really beyond Genesis chapter 3 yet. Creation, fall. Doesn't even give us past Genesis 3. Yet even though we're early in the story, we find ourselves confronted with a massive problem of mankind's own making. And the question becomes, how will we ever get out of the bind we've gotten ourselves in? How do we escape? Well, this leads us to the third major and largest movement in the biblical storyline, really what the Bible is all about, which, um, which is the story that we have to tell. The third movement is known as redemption. 
And this part of the story begins as early as Genesis chapter 3.15, where God promises the woman an offspring or a seed that's going to crush the head of the serpent. And it continues all the way through Revelation 20, if you're looking at your Bible. And the movement of redemption reminds us that God's great love for his creation is greater than the destruction that sin has brought. Through the course of the scriptures, we get the picture of God coming and making relationship right. We have ruined things. He comes and restores what we had broken. Now, how would God do this? Well, you know how he does it if you've read the Bible. God himself would have to leave his glory and his majesty and his honor. He would have to stoop low. He would have to be humiliated and be contained in the creation that he had made. And that seemingly impossibility actually happened. God needed to become man to rescue man back to God. And this plan culminated in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God. And in Jesus' death, all the sin, all the moral problems that man had were finally dealt with. And in his resurrection, as Christ rose to new life, God was recreating what man could be like. We believe that God is on a renewal and a restoration mission. It's really what the scriptures are all about. God is on a mission of renewing his creation, the very creation that we are responsible for polluting and disfiguring with our sin, God promises to come and restore. And it's worth asking, what exactly is God renewing? What is the scope of this renewal? How far does his renewal reach, you might ask? Well, as we understand the scriptures, we say that God is on a mission of renewing all things. Everything is the target of God's renewal because everything's been affected and disfigured by sin. As the great hymn writer Isaac Watts says in his classic hymn, Joy to the World, I thought uh, after we'd printed our bulletin this week, I wish we had sung a Christmas song today. Because in in that song, he says, Jesus comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. So if Jesus comes to restore what was lost because of sin, we can understand what's in store for renewal by asking, what did sin disfigure? And we see that first, sin came and damaged. It did a number on human beings. It did a number on those originally made in God's image. The crown jewel of God's creation, you and me, the one thing in God's creation that he looked upon and declared very good. The first thing that generally comes to mind for most Christians is that sin came and it plunged mankind into misery and death. So the work of God's renewal is about reclaiming or renewing people who have plunged themselves into sin. Paul touches on this aspect of renewal in Titus 3. It's there for you in your bulletin when he says, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Talk about misery and sin. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, His own initiative, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. 
So when we talk about renewal, we are at least talking about God renewing humanity to a right relationship with Him and with one another. But it's more than just humanity that needs to be renewed. As we look at the Scripture, we see that creation itself has suffered the consequences of our sin. The created order, it doesn't work right because of our mistakes. The created order is also looking for a day, groaning for a day, when all things will be made new. When it can operate as it was originally intended. Isn't that an amazing thought? To think about, we currently live in a created order that is groaning for redemption. What will that redemption look like, not just for us, but for the trees and the flowers and the oceans and the mountains, all of God's majestic creation? You see this idea touched on in Romans chapter 8, where Paul says, For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. Creation has been subject to frustration and and decay, but it will one day be free to operate according to design, all because of the renewal that God will bring. Now, look, when we talk about renewal, I think that what often comes to our mind is something spiritual that we add to the physical. We think of it like a dress that we put on to make ourselves and the world pretty again. We need to put on renewal. We need to add renewal to ourselves and to this world. But that's not how we should think about the renewal that God intends to bring. As we understand renewal from the Scriptures and understand the actual story, it might be more accurate to view renewal as subtraction, not addition. What do I mean by that? Well, renewal isn't an addition of something spiritual to the physical. It's not adding supernatural to the natural. It's not adding something valuable to the creaturely life that was previously lacking. Rather, when we talk about God's renewal, it's the subtraction of sin and death and the dominion of Satan. Renewal is a subtraction of these things that leads to the restoration and vitality and original purpose that was already there, but debilitated by sin. So when we talk about following God in the renewal of all things, we're talking about pushing back the curse of sin in this world and in our lives, trying to subtract sin from this world in our lives, trying to root out the weeds of sin in our life and in this world. In a sense, we're talking about becoming more whole and more human, living into the way that we were created to live. And we can do that now that we have Christ's resurrection power inside of us. So God's renewal, renewing effects Um, are meant to engage all of His good creation. It affects the whole of creation, not just spiritual life. And this idea of God working toward the renewal of all things, physical and spiritual, it is exciting. And this is Reformed Theology 101, by the way. It is exciting because it opens up to you and me a world of possibilities as followers of Jesus to extend His renewal into all of life. If renewal isn't just spiritual, if it's not just adding spiritual coding on some things, it means that all of life is evangelistic. 
Not just what happens here on Sunday in church or when you're talking about quote-unquote spiritual things. It means that all of life is an act of worship, not just Sunday mornings. You can also be engaged in the renewal that God wants to bring in the areas of education, invocation, marriage, family, sport, art, everything else. And this is, like I said, Reformed Theology 101, that all truth is God's truth, that nothing is beyond God's care and concern, that all things work towards God's glory, not just what we might call the spiritual things. And in the course of the story, during this movement of the story, we see God's work of redemption and promised restoration come to its peak with the inbreaking of the kingdom of God in the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. When Jesus came to earth, you know the phrase that he used a lot on the pages of the Gospels. You see the phrase kingdom of God used over and over again. And when Jesus and the gospel writers use that phrase kingdom of God, it's almost synonymous with how Paul uses the word gospel in his letters. When Jesus and the gospel writers use the phrase the kingdom of God, they are referring to the good news of God's kingship, reign, rule, and sovereign dominion over this world. In the person and work of Jesus, we have the demonstration of God's kingship directed at all evil in the world. Jesus came to bind Satan, to do battle against the effects of sin, and to establish a new kingdom. In Jesus, the great work of renewal has begun in earnest. It's begun. Jesus has started things going at full speed. You might think of it that way. Jesus has started renewal at full speed. He is our hope for renewal in our lives and in this world. And all of this is clearly seen in Christ's kingdom words and kingdom deeds on the pages of the Gospels. Think about the miracles of Jesus for a minute. Sure, he came to preach. He used a lot of words. Probably preached some great sermons. But he also healed sicknesses. He cast out demons. He cured physical disabilities. He fed the hungry. And these are acts of restoration and healing and life and freedom. In a sense, Jesus is freeing creation of sin and evil and restoring creation to its original purposes. He's giving people a taste of what's to come. A small appetizer of what full renewal might be like one day constantly giving us previews of what's to come more fully soon with bellies being full and sicknesses being healed and people being set free. And he's not done yet. In fact, we believe that we get the chance as followers of Jesus to follow him as he continues to do his work through us through his body, the church. We're how God plans to continue this work that he began in Jesus and will one day complete fully. We're called to make earth look more like our true home. We know what Jesus wants to do. We know the kind of world that he wants to create. We've been given tastes of it. We know the renewal that he longs to bring, not just to us, but to our friends and our neighbors. And we are called to cultivate the characteristics of heaven, not just in our lives, in our hearts, but in this world. What would it look like to be more faithful, more patient, more loving, more kind, more gentle? To make this place look more beautiful and whole, using the right means to do it. And while we know what Jesus longs to do in this world through us, 
You don't need to be told that it can seem hopeless at times still. Like sin and evil are winning the day. It oftentimes feels like a losing battle. But we have to remind ourselves that we're living in between times. In between the time Jesus has inaugurated his new kingdom and the day that he will come to establish it fully on earth. You've heard this before. It's what theologians oftentimes call the already and the not yet. We are already experiencing the renewal that Christ has truly won, but we're not yet experiencing it fully and finally. Truly, but not yet fully. And so we stay in the presence and we fight to bring renewal, the renewal of Jesus to our lives and to this world with an eye toward the future day when he will come fully to complete that work of renewal. We find ourselves between the third and the fourth movement of the grand story. And we actually get to read the end of the story. We get a glimpse of the fourth movement. You can read the end of the story before we get there. Even as we're engaged in the middle of the story now, we see the end painted for us in Revelation chapter 21, where John says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Look, what we believe is that one day soon, all of God's creation is going to be renewed and that you and I are going to experience it as it was always intended to be when it's fully and finally restored. That's what you and I are waiting for this morning. That's what John is pointing us towards at the end of his revelation. We are a group of people who live by faith, faith in God's promises to us, looking forward to the day when Jesus will come to make all things new, but it requires patience, which is hard for us because we tend to want renewal fast. After all, we live in an immediate gratification culture in so many ways. We often expect quick solutions. But God does not always work on our timetable and according to our expectations. He promises renewal. He promises that it's going to be good, but that it takes time. And it's worth waiting for. It's worth longing for. It's worth pressing toward. Just think of the emotional aspects of renewal for a minute. I don't know if you've ever done this. No more sadness. Some of you struggle with the debilitating depression. No more depression. No more anxiety. Lots of us struggle with these emotions all the time, but there is coming a day where these emotions will be no more. Complete renewal. And it's not just emotions. In the new heavens and the new earth, there will be no hospital, no back pain, no cancer, No need for police, no standing armies, no natural disasters. And did you notice in Revelation 21 that the holy city where God dwells, it comes down to us. We don't go up to it. God will eventually, completely, fully, finally restore this world, the ground that we are standing on. At the end of the story, we will inhabit what the scriptures call, not heaven, but new heavens and new earth. This means that the image we sometimes have 
of living as disembodied souls in a never-ending worship service aren't really biblically accurate. Instead, the Bible paints a picture of us residing in God's creation with perfect bodies and souls, continuing to work, continuing to learn, continuing to recreate, to enjoy God's good gifts, to worship perfectly through all of our activities. That is where we're heading. That's the end of the story. That's the fourth movement. Final and full restoration. Final and full renewal. And as we continue to walk through this world marked by sorrow and misery, we are invited to keep our eyes cut to God's promise of complete renewal one day so that we might walk in faithfulness now. Let me pray for us this morning. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your goodness to us. Thankful that you have not left us to wallow in, the own mis- in our own misery uh, and dysfunction that we have created through our sin. We thank you that you are in the process, even as we speak, of bringing a renewal and restoration to our lives and to this world. And we look forward to the day when you will fully and finally restore and renew all things. We pray that you would help us to live this day in light of that and help us to invite our friends and neighbors on this journey. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.